0: This week, many leaders in the flood insurance world are meeting at the National Flood Conference in Washington, D.C. Among the many speakers is FEMA Administrator Brock Long. Administrator Long is not an insurance practitioner per se, but he is very vocal about the need for Americans to become better prepared for disasters. And for him, that means being financially prepared. Part of that is to understand insurance coverage and collectively doing what he calls closing the insurance gap. I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast.
1: Each citizen is responsible for their own individual preparedness. We do not have a true culture of preparedness in this country, and we need to hit the reset button.
0: That was FEMA Administrator Brock Long during his 2017 Senate confirmation hearing. When Administrator Long talks about building a culture of preparedness in the United States, he talks a lot about financial preparedness and overcoming what he refers to as asset poverty or the inability to financially recover from emergencies. A major aspect of that effort is to do what he calls close the insurance gap. So what does that mean? Well, here are a couple of interesting statistics. Nationwide Insurance estimates that two out of every three homes in America are underinsured, The average underinsurance amount is about 22%, though some homes are underinsured by 60% or more. According to a 2015 Swiss re-report, uninsured losses from earthquake, flood, and wind damage in the United States total more than $30 billion a year. And take Hurricane Harvey, for example. According to a CoreLogic study, approximately 70% of the flood damage from Hurricane Harvey was uninsured. Floods are the most common natural disaster in our nation. Yet less than 50% of homes in the highest risk area across the country are insured against this type of disaster. To understand the idea of closing the insurance gap, I sat down with David Marstad, FEMA's Assistant Administrator for Federal Insurance, to discuss Administrator Long's vision for equipping Americans with the knowledge and the call to action to financially prepare for disasters. So David Marstad, Assistant Administrator for Insurance at FEMA, uh, thanks so much for joining the FEMA podcast. Sure. Good to be here. So we've recently heard in an interview with uh, the administrator where he laid out his strategic priorities, and among them is to foster and instill a culture of preparedness in the nation. And one of the aspects of that culture of preparedness is to get people to think about preparedness in, in a personal responsibility sense. But more than that, it's about identifying what financial risk they're at and specifically and specifically to you thinking about what does it mean to have insurance what kind of insurance and what kind of risk do they have what does that mean um to fema and to the national Food insurance program part of fema um to close the insurance gap
1: so he's identified a very critical part about uh being prepared for um whatever might come might come our way and part of that in the first line of defense for that is to understand our financial circumstances and to have insurance for uh, those things that, that mean something to us, our business, our home, our cars. Uh, so closing the insurance gap really is about making sure that people have the insurance they need, number one, so we reduce the number of uh, Folks that after a disaster that find themselves without insurance, uninsured survivors, so we reduce that number. But then two also, that the gap, insurance gap, closing that means you have the right type and the right amount of insurance. So we also find many times after disasters that people don't have enough insurance. They did the right thing, the first step, making sure they have a policy, but then they didn't insure to value or they didn't provide, you know, didn't buy, or weren't advised to buy the right uh, type of coverage. So you have the underinsured component. So our big challenge in the National Flood Insurance Program is really attacking uh, the first one and then paying close attention to the second. Right now, not enough people have a flood insurance policy. Uh, Event after event, disaster after disaster, whether it's an inlet event, in the middle of the country that's going on right now, or whether it's a Harvey-type event after a hurricane that we had uh, last, uh, last August and September, uh, time and time again, we go into neighborhoods and you'll have a couple of homes that have flood insurance and many homes that don't have flood insurance. And the evidence is very clear that in, the, in those circumstances, the individual with a flood insurance policy is on the road to recovery, has a path forward. It's a very trying time for them. It's probably the worst day of their of their lives. But they, they at least have the basis by which to uh, get back uh, on the, on their feet. The uninsured uh, survivor is in a totally different space. They have a very uncertain future. Do they dip into savings? Do they rely on the benevolence of their of their neighbors in their community? Do they have to take out another loan? Uh, Do they have to walk away from their property? Uh, So the path of those two uh, homes on the same block in the same community post-disaster is markedly different based on whether they have insurance or not. That's why the NFIP has uh, adopted um, what we're calling our moonshot, where we're looking to double the number of properties across America uh, residential properties that have a flood, a flood insurance policy, regardless of whether they purchase that policy from the National Flood Insurance Program or whether they purchase it in the private in the private marketplace, because we're convinced uh, that it is a sound public policy objective to have more insured survivors uh, than fewer insured survivors, because the individual families. Uh, recover faster, their neighborhoods recover faster, their community recovers faster, and they've taken the right steps and accepted the responsibility associated with being a a a, a good citizen in taking the the necessary steps in this culture of preparedness that the administrator is 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 uh, is articulating uh, than than their neighbors did.
0: So, oh, I mean, how many? policies do we have now? When you talk about doubling the, the coverage, is there some thought behind the, the need to double it? Or is it a worthy goal? Or are you, is there an assessment that's been done to say, yeah. well, we do need this many policies? No,
1: it, there's an assessment. But, but by its very nature, we're calling it a moonshot for, for a reason. In 1961, yeah. Yeah. President Kennedy stood before Congress and said before the end of this decade, we're going to put a man on the moon and bring him home safely. The state of, our, state of our space endeavors at that point in time, uh, I'm, I, there was more skepticism than not, uh, but he accomplished it. He set the goal and the objective. That's why we're calling it a moonshot. It's audacious. Uh, we've had a 5% policy growth, objective, target, goal for years and never met it. So doing things the way that we've done them isn't going to get us with more insured survivors post-event. So that's why we We've started a movement where we're, in essence, taking uh, this moonshot. And it's, it's not NFIP's moonshot or FIMA's moonshot or FEMA's moonshot or DHS's moonshot. It, we believe this is a national moonshot, that we are looking to bring everybody on board to achieving. Now, specifically to answer your question, we have 4,000 contracts in force, uh, we have 5.1 million policies in force because some contracts have more than one policy associated with them. So we're focused on contracts which represent a property. So we want to double the number of cro- properties, number of contracts in force, and that's what our that's what our moonshot is. But how many, how believe, many
0: policies? How many contracts in force? Uh, four, four million. Excuse nine, me, I four nine, said four, four,
1: thousand, four thousand. Four million. Yeah. Uh, and then we have 5.1 million policies. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I apologize, but. Uh, got the numbers mixed up. So to put that into some kind of context, uh, currently uh, there's a mandatory purchase requirement for anybody located in the special flood hazard area if they have a federally backed mortgage. The special flood hazard area is an area that uh, correlates to a 1% annual chance of flooding every year. It's the minimum federal standard that communities that participate in the program say they will regulate land use against. So it's a minimum federal standard, and if you're in that area, what we call the special flood hazard area or the high-risk area, uh, which really aren't either, but that's a whole other discussion for another another day. (laughs) And it confuses a lot of people. It confuses a lot of people. But that area that we've designated that, you know, you must have, the federal government is requiring you under certain circumstances to have a policy. We, we estimate that we have roughly 40% of the, num, of the properties in that area have flood insurance. So if we just were able to uh, convince uh, and provide you know, good logic and reason for why, some, why these folks that don't have it should have it, we'd hit our moonshot. And that's why... In most events, there's there, the neighborhoods have uh, are, are as I characterized them before, you know, two properties with flood insurance and three or four uh, without. Um, so there's 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 space there. Then you have the properties outside the special flood hazard area. We currently about, oh, uh, roughly 25 percent of our policies are outside the special flood hazard area. We'll have to check that number. Uh, but 30% of our losses in an average loss year come to our policies that are outside the special flood hazard area. Yeah, and we saw a number of those in Houston uh, after Absolutely. Hurricane Harvey. Absolutely. Uh, and so you've got all of those properties that are at low to moderate risk to flooding, as we currently designate them, that are subject to, uh, to our moonshot. So it's really a demand issue. There's not a demand for our product. So part of what we're doing uh, to to work towards achieving our moonshot is we're looking at redesigning the national flood insurance policy. It hasn't been changed for a generation. We believe that there is an opportunity to improve our product and make it uh, more appealing to our customers and potential customers develop a product that is more like the industry standards that they're used to like their homeowner's policy. So instead of requiring that they buy a policy on their on their on their dwelling and buy a separate policy on their contents with separate limits, with separate deductibles, we 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 develop a policy that's like their homeowner policy it covers both their dwelling and their contents one deductible. We look at optional coverages that we don't offer now. Uh, Maybe higher deductibles, maybe lower deductibles, maybe better understand, uh, write it so that it's easier to understand, simpler uh, for both the homeowner uh, and or renter to understand, but also for the agent to sell and the adjuster to adjust so our policy is more complicated than it needs to be. So part of our contribution is coming up with a new suite of insurance products, a homeowner's flood, a renter's flood, a small business flood. That correlates more to industry standards than what it, it currently does. Secondly, is we have to modernize the way that we currently rate our policies, the way we determine what we charge, price our policies. So again, very valid actuarially based system uh, that was developed you know, a generation ago needs to be updated to today and with a different approach so that we look at how can we rate this uh, policy so that we can provide the premium needed to have a sound financial framework for the program and yet sends the right risk signals and messages to policyholders. If your policy, if we're charging you $2,000 for your policy versus $750 per year policy, that should send the signal that I'm more at risk than my neighbor that is only being charged $750. So, how we can develop a, a rating system that is, uh, again, that folks can value, they can trust, and that sends the right communication messages, um, then that will, we believe, uh, spur more people to consider and, and buy our policy. Because we really need to change change. The cultural dynamic associated with how people think about flood policies,
0: yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about that that psychological piece there because there's obviously a number of, number of ways that somebody could enter into a flood insurance agreement, either maybe you have a federally backed or federally regulated mortgage and you live in a mandatory area, um, you might live close to a stream a creek river, and you just think instinctually this is probably a good idea to buy this. Um, it might be something that you've had for a while. You, you, you thought it was a good idea and maybe you kept the policy. So there's all these different reasons why people either keep or buy into flood insurance. But then there's the people that you mentioned that, you know, for whatever reason, aren't buying into those policies. What's the psychological barrier that we need to cross to get people to consider this not just a financial tool, but a preparedness tool?
1: So we've. Uh, we've unintentionally given signals, uh, and we've the infrastructure around the National Flood Insurance Program uh, has fallen into a pattern of doing whatever we can to help somebody not have to buy a flood insurance policy. Um, I go into an insurance agent's uh, office and I say I'm thinking about flood insurance, and so he pulls up uh, he pulls up a map or he pulls up a chart. And he looks at it and he says, oh, you don't have to buy it. You're not, the government, you're not required to buy it. Mm -hmm. Wrong message. Wrong message. The, the, you know, somebody goes online. Am I required to buy it or not Not required to buy it? Am I in the special flood hazard area or out of it? If I'm in, oh my goodness, do I really want to, do I really have to buy it? If I'm out, boy, I'm glad I'm out, even though I very well might be not very far from a river source or whatever. And then we get into the whole issue of urban, urban flooding. Um, and it's something that we don't talk a lot about. But you might not be anywhere near a, 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 a flood source, a river, or a coast, or something like that. But a heavy rainfall, based on the topography or whatever, in your urban environment with a lot of concrete, and you might have a flood event. It might be localized. Uh, it might not be a big national event. But it's a big event for that neighborhood that got flooded. So urban flooding is a whole other area, and we don't talk a lot about that. They might not be, more than likely, very well might not be in a special flood hazard area. Their storm sewer might have the capacity to handle it. It might not have the capacity to handle it. But getting back to the central theme, we've developed a culture of, you know, it's really okay if you don't have to buy it to not buy it. And we need to change that to what's my responsibility to my family, um, to my community, to be prepared to financially uh, deal with a, a flooding event regardless of, of, the, of the reason and or the, or the magnitude. Uh, back again, as we talked before, riverine event, a lot different from a coastal event, uh, but the pictures look the same. Four feet of water in my home is an issue. In both of those instances, regardless of whether it's a presidentially declared disaster and I have tens of thousands of people are in the same boat as me or whether there are a hundred of my neighbors that are in the same and it's not a presidentially declared disaster, the impact to that individual is the same. We don't necessarily talk about that. We don't necessarily do a good job in the past of how does that contribute to the resilience of my community? How does that... how does that uh, affect the economic aspect of my community? If, if uh, 250 homes in a community and a school and a hospital and a church are flooded, what's that mean? How long does it take for us to get back on, onto our feet? So part of it is just changing the discussion and changing the thinking and changing the no, it's not an in or out required or not. It's listen, what is my risk? And what, do I, what steps do I reasonably need to take to minimize that risk? Can I mitigate in some way? Does it make sense for me to elevate? Does it make sense for me to flood-proof? Does it make sense for me to do something to reduce the potential impact? And then after I've considered those, then how do I transfer my risk? And that's what insurance is all about. I'm transferring my risk to the insurance company. I'm prepaying, in essence, what the loss may be. Now for those folks and there are a handful of them that might have the resources to be able to say listen I don't need to prepay for 10 years for the loss that's going to happen sometime between now and 10 years or 30 years if uh, you know if you're in the special flood hazard area it's 26% chance that you're going to have a loss in the sometime in the in that period of your 30 mor- year mortgage maybe it maybe I'm in a position where I don't have to prepay for Whichever year that happens, because I got it sitting aside. But we also know that a lot of folks across America don't have $500 uh, if a disaster were to hit them tomorrow.
0: Yeah, and the administrator talks a lot
1: about that. And so we, we really need to change how we approach it. And so we're using, uh, you know, we're using social, uh, social behavior science uh, in how we communicate about this. We know that just trying to scare somebody into doing something doesn't work, for example. Uh, but we we also know that if somebody knows that three out of four of my neighbors have flood insurance, that that fourth individual is likely to take a very uh, uh, stronger look at it than if it's a zero of four of my neighbors have flood insurance. So how can we use that that information? And we're testing things like that to determine how we can change the culture. But it goes every, every part, regardless of whether it's the real estate person. Um, there should be disclosure. What's the flood risk here? The lender needs to look at it from the lender's perspective. Uh, the homeowner, of course. The insurance agent needs to say, listen, um, I recognize that right now it's kind of difficult. We don't make it easy for our agents to write an a NFIP policy. But even so, I have an obligation to my clients uh, and my policyholders to make sure I fully inform them as to uh, what it costs. And quite frankly, if you're outside the special flood hazard area and you haven't had a loss, we have low-cost options, uh, less than $500 a year. Uh, now, obviously, the insurance agent doesn't make it a bucket of money uh, for selling that policy, but he's gaining a bucket of self, uh, uh, of self-worth and, and doing, uh, providing a whole lot of benefit to his community by making sure people know that. So, so. I think
0: that goes back to one of the pieces you were talking about that, um, the, the institutional pieces of determining the risk or determining the, what you need, you know, you make all those decisions, uh, you go through those that checklist of decisions when you're doing life insurance or you know auto insurance things like that. You're determining what your deductible ought to be. Um, but in this case, you know we have these maps, we have these tools that determine a risk. And in some cases, the conversation is you're not required to buy it because you're not in this zone. And other times, the conversation is oh, you're not at risk because you're not in this zone. And so, you know, how much does that play in a, a factor when when people are making that? decision to buy flood insurance, just having these tools.
1: Well, so I, I was in the insurance business for 25 years. I sat across kitchen tables and across business desks and, 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 and sold insurance and, and, you know, nobody likes to buy insurance. Uh, they buy car insurance because they know very well, um, around the corner, somebody might do something stupid uh, and and bang into them and and damage their car and injure th- themselves and their family. They know intuitively that could happen, and they know that they might get sick. Uh, that they have to go to the doctor or the dentist or the eye. They know that's going to happen. Um, their home. They they know that somebody can fall and sue them. And so part of the homeowner policy is a liability coverage. They know that a hailstorm could come, a windstorm could happen. Fire is not as likely as before they intuitively know these things can happen to them and so the conversation is somewhat um, uh, it's not easy but you can have a conversation of here you need to look at these things to protect yourself and your fi- you know the financial wherefor all of, of your family there's also in my mind uh, uh, a, a long time difference between fire and flood wildfires scare people Um Fires in our communities back uh, as our our country was being developed were were big events that scared people. Um, For whatever reason, flood and water doesn't have the perception, doesn't scare people to the extent that those other examples that I've given. So part of the hurdle is to get them over. It may happen to me because right now flooding is something, even though it's our number one natural disaster year in and year out, People believe that it won't happen to them. And if it does happen to them, because the way we talk about it, 1% annual chance, 1 in 100 year, they think if it does happen to them and they didn't have flood insurance, well, it's not going to happen again. You know, the whole gambler uh, approach to to this. So there's a lot that is into the, the psychological, social aspect of how we think about flood insurance, and that's some of the hurdles that we have to figure out how we get over as we close the insurance gap, especially as it comes to flooding insur- uh, flood insurance, because, um, as I said before, we're, we're, we're approaching the 50th year of the National Flood Insurance Program. So the government, we've been at this a long time, and we've had the right motive and incentives all along the way of the history of this program. And there's been a lot of benefit from this program, from floodplain management, from losses avoided, to the four million people, uh, the 5.1 million policyholders that we have now, uh, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, we had less than a million. So there's been a lot of positive uh, aspects of the program and the history of the program that we want to build on over the next next 50 years. Part of that, in my mind, is developing a product, pricing it away. Uh, associating the risk, communicating the risk in a way that encourages more people to have a flood policy when that event strikes them.
0: So, floods are the most common and costly natural disaster that we face in the United States, and obviously, it's a big natural part, disaster year in natu- year out. It is the one of the biggest parts of what we do here in FEMA and what we deal with in FEMA. And so, as we look to empowering people and, and asking them to take personal responsibility in determining what their risk is and taking steps to um, to avoid that risk. You know, what are some of the conversations that they need to have with their insurance agent? Because insurance agents ultimately sell this product that is underwritten by FEMA. So what should they be looking at? Aside from looking at the map and, you know, seeing what their risk is, is determined by the flood insurance rate map, you know, what are some of the things that they need to talk to their agent
1: about? Well, that's that really gets to the heart of the whole um, under insurance component of, of closing the insurance gap. So let's, let's say you, you don't have a policy now. Um, and let's say you're not required. Let's just start there as the, as the premise. But as I'm talking with the homeowner, uh, with my, my insurance agent, I'd suggest, um, at, at the annual renewal when you're more than likely having a conversation about your homeowner policy, um, there's a couple of things you should ask. One is what's the likelihood and what's it gonna cost uh, for me to have a flood insurance policy? And so right now, yes, we're gonna look at the flood insurance rate map of the community, the flood insurance study, and see where, where you fall because that's on that map, because that's gonna determine cur- the way we currently uh, decide what to charge you. And so if you're outside that special flood hazard area, again, Thirty percent of our losses are, are in that la- that area. So, what's that? Forty dollars a month. Um, what's that? What's that provide me? Um, and it needs to be. If we had one foot of water in my house, how much damage would there be? So we've got tools where you can go and you can you can determine if I have a foot uh, of water in my house. More than likely, you're going to have twenty five to $40,000 worth of damage, somewhere in there. Just rule of thumb, average size house, okay? $400, does it make sense for me to protect myself to the, to the possible uh, downside risk, not even a total loss, just a, a partial loss of $25,000? Of does that make uh, economic sense? And our premise is yes. It, it, without question, it does. So you have to have... How do, what do I have to do to get the policy? Where do I sign? Second thing you need to have a conversation of is on the earthquake uh, side of things because um, even in California, where clearly everybody knows and understands there's a very significant earthquake risk, less than 10% of the properties in California are, are insured against earthquake. That's a big issue just waiting to happen. You know, a, a, a uh, 1909 earthquake uh, today, would cause tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars damage. Right? Who's gonna Who's gonna take care of that? Well, under the current scheme, uh, the federal government, the taxpayers across the country. That earthquake could happen in the middle of the country, in the New Madrid. Same thing. What's the penetration rate for earthquake? Very low. So, again, this same conversation that 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 we're responsible for having because the administrator fully, fully understands um, that a part of his portfolio and responsibility is the largest single uh, peril insurance operation in the world at $4.5 billion worth of revenue. Uh, and while he understands that and he's focused on that, he also understands and is clearly identifying that, listen, this insurance gap goes beyond floods. Earthquake is very real out there, and we need to be having a discussion, same type of discussion that we're having in, on flood in the earthquake uh, arena. There are there are places where, that are subject to the wildfire or the mudslides. Okay, those are all the types of discussion as a homeowner. If my home, and more than likely it is, is my number one asset, what do I need to do to protect it? What do I need to do to make sure that it's there um, if something uh, bad happens to me, if the worst day of my life happens, what's my financial situation going to be And there? And that's, again, the basis of of insurance is just risk transfer. So I'm willing to put up an annual amount for an expected loss sometime in the future. And it makes sense to prepare to do that.
0: David Marstad from the National Fund Insurance Program. Thanks so much for joining us on the FEMA podcast. You have a lot of passion for this, uh, and it shows and, uh, I encourage you to continue doing the great work. Thank you. Appreciate it. We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast.